Okay, all right. Oh, hi, you guys. My name is Kathy, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi. Thank you, Dory, very much. Dory is way more awesome than me, and um, you guys are so lucky to live near her. I hope you take the opportunity, if you don't know her already, to do that, and I want to thank you. And Mike, right there, he is the best uh, host driver on planet Earth. Just going to say right there. The guy is uh, like, I don't know, he's like Uber and chauffeur all rolled into one. And I just can't thank you enough for what you've done for us today. And um, it's been a really good day. I met uh, Rosie and Larry and Don. I don't know, Don probably went to bed. It was a long day. Um, <laughs> but it was a good day because we met each other. And I think that the whole essence of why we're here is because we connect with each other. You can't? Uh-oh. How about now? No, okay, so um, what should I do? Lean closer. I, people say I talk too soft, but I find that impossible to leave because I'm so loud. Um, can you hear me now? Should I start over from the beginning? No, okay. <laughs> I just thank everybody. Okay, so um, I got sober on July 24th, 1989 in Palm Desert, California at Fellowship Hall, which needs to be mentioned because it is an awesome place. Um, I have a sponsor and her name is Lori S. and she's the nicest person in the whole wide world. She's the only person I know that sticks to that credo of is it true, is it kind, is it necessary? This woman lives by that. It's like impossible to be around her because um, so, I'm not exactly that great about it. But um, you know, she reminds me all the time, you're not doing it. Um, so <laughs> I love her um, very much. And um, I want to ask, I know it's weird in a, in a thing like this to ask you, but if you have like under a year, could you just discreetly give me a little wave or else go like this? Okay. All right. Hi. <laughs> I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> oh, my God. Thank you for coming tonight. I came here because of you. Um, that's why I came here, because I just adore you. And um, I want you to stay really bad. Um, I came, uh, too, uh, to AA once upon a time, and I did not want to be here. I, I couldn't imagine anything worse in the world than be in the AA people. You know, I had a horrible resentment against AA um, I had a mother in AA, and I hated my mother. So I just associated the whole thing with bad. And um, I'd been to AA so many times. Uh, the court, you know, felt like I ought to go to AA. And I had uh, the CPS felt like I ought to go to AA. I mean, everybody felt like I ought to go to AA. And I would go for the time allotted, and then I wouldn't go. And then, uh, you know, because I didn't want to be sober. I just didn't want to be in trouble. I didn't want to go to jail. I... Um, I wanted to not go back to jail. I mean, there was also, I went to a, a, in jail trying to look good, you know, all this stuff. And um, it was just ridiculous because I never wanted to be sober. But um, that's okay, too, because you're going to hear something maybe while you're, you know, doing the wrong thing. A, a. Um, just don't get a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Um, but um, take my advice. Um, anyway... Um, so I didn't want to be here, but uh, here's what happened. Um, 
I drank too much. I drank way too much for 17 years. Um, I started drinking when I was 16 years old, and I stopped drinking when I was 33 years old. And um, yeah, I was never going to drink, ever, as long as I live. I grew up in this situation with like a pack of wolves, you know? I mean, I just did not, I had a mother who was alcoholic. I had seven stepdads. I went to, what was it, 32 elementary schools. 32 elementary schools by the sixth grade. I went to like seven junior highs and three high schools. Um, it was just this ungodly experience of life and there was no way out, you know? Uh, we ended up going to foster care, and it was just a, a freaking nightmare. And so one thing I got from that was alcohol is bad. Because uh, back then in the 60s and the 70s, I'm really old, by the way. And so back then, um, CPS would just give you back all the time. You know, all she had to do was get a husband and be sober for a week, and she gets back. And she, loved, she wanted us back, which is incredible to me. I don't know why. I wouldn't have wanted us back. But um, she did. But then she drank. And then, you know, it this woman just didn't drink. My brother says she's the worst woman alcoholic he's ever seen in his life, and, and I think it's true. Um, I've seen a lot of women alcoholics. I've never seen anybody like Dottie, and um, that's what I called her. I hated her. I hated drinking. I was never going to drink. So what happened, Kathy? <laughs> I'm um, walking home from school one day, and I have no friends. I have really no family. I have no soul. I have no love in my heart. I have nothing. I am an empty shell. I have learned not to feel and not to let anyone in. I have learned that very young because they're going to leave you or they're going to hurt you, so just don't do it. And this is who I was at age 16. I was, like, done. And these kids who I didn't really know said, Kathy, do you want to come with us? <laughs> yeah, I do. I, nobody wanted me to go with them ever. And, um, and I went, and they were going over to Dave's house. Everybody here knows Dave. We all know Dave, right? He, uh, he lives with his mother. He's 30. He's the pot salesman on Kelly Rolf Street. And um, he's this girl, Lisa's boyfriend, and she's 15. And, um, and, <laughs> you know, and I know I'm not supposed to talk about pot, and I won't anymore. But I didn't know I was going to be an AA, so I did smoke the pot that day. But, um, you know, if I knew I was going to join AA, I would have said no. Um, I didn't know. Had no plans. Um, but they also had uh, this magic elixir called Red Mountain Wine. And um, I don't think it was really wine. Um, and, they, and they gave it to me in a Flintstone jelly glass jar. And I don't know if you remember your first drink that vividly, but I remember and here's why, because for 16 years, I never took a breath. And that day, in that garage, with those kids, I went, <sighs> speakers will talk about how they felt taller, and their pimples flew off their face, and they felt pretty, and they could talk to people. I didn't feel any of those things. I felt like I could breathe. That's it. I didn't all of a sudden get social or cute or any of that. I did get the dog loaded. Um, I remember I wanted to share this, this wonderful feeling, which was wrong, too. I know now. But um, I was 16. Um, and, I, and I didn't... Here's the thing about alcoholism. It's so crazy. 
Dottie drank vodka. This was Red Mountain wine and marijuana. This is not vodka. I'm not like her. This is okay. This is what alcoholism will tell you. It will make anything okay. My, uh, my whole life, I'm never going to drink. All of a sudden, wine and marijuana is okay. Just like that. You know, I don't know why. So I went back the next day and the next day. I would have moved into the garage if I could have. I would have just stayed there forever because I liked that feeling. And, um, and it didn't take long before I was um, just getting in all sorts of trouble. I don't drink well. I'm, I'm amazed at people who start drinking and then they go to college and they get a family and they do stuff. Uh, not me. I drink. I stop doing the right thing. Immediately. Uh, immediately, I um, am in trouble at high school. I'm, in, I'm just in trouble. The police are, know about me in a very short period of time. And um, I, don't know, I don't know why it does that to me, but it just makes me... Uh, here's what happens. I do know. Um, I have no more choices. When I put alcohol in my body, I'm not choosing what happens next. The alcohol's choosing... Kathy's gone out of the picture, and um, alcohol creeps in. And I, uh, I didn't care. I didn't see anything wrong with the little police action and a little, you know, high school suspension. And, you know, I didn't see anything wrong with it at all. And um, I managed to get out of high school. They, they didn't let me walk with the other kids. They took, gave me the diploma out in the parking lot of the school, and they told me, never come back to this school again. Go home. And um, that, that was, you know, didn't bother me. Didn't bother me at all. And I didn't want to do anything with my life, so I became a cocktail waitress at age 17 with a fake ID. And um, all the while, I'm not feeling. I am not feeling. I am not making a plan for my life. I'm just kind of on autopilot. I'm drinking. I'm drinking. I'm drinking in bars now people and I look pretty and I'm 17 of course I'm popular in a bar at age 17 you know it was no bra drinking um and um this is what I'm doing I'm smoking Sherman cigarettes and you know I mean it's the 70s and disco and I'm so cool and um I am not feeling or thinking and I'm getting in more and more trouble and I don't care and um I just I don't know what alcohol did to me. It just took everything from me. Pretty soon, one night, I'm working in a bar, and I this guy walks in. This guy, some random guy off the street walks in, and this other waitress goes, I'm going to marry that guy. And I go, no, I am. And I did. I, I did. Like that week, I married this guy. Um, this guy in Las Vegas. I married this guy. Stranger named Michael. I married him in Las Vegas. I mean, I didn't even know his last name. I knew nothing. We're drunk. We're drunk. I'm in a bikini with a bottle of scotch at the wedding. Um, I remember the guy that married us did say, do you really want to do this? You know, I mean, like, that's his job to just marry us and shut up. He's at Elvis Chapel, you know. I mean, no, he's not going And um, so now I'm married to Michael, and I find out that Michael had recently been released from San Quentin. And, um, Michael didn't mind that because he had spent his whole life in prison since he was 14. And that was sort of his career path. And um, now I married Michael. And Michael's not really hip on me leaving. 
and things really escalate out of control at that point. And I only tell you this because I want you to know, you know, we always think when we're drinking, oh, you know, I'm just going to drink. I'll get sober. I'm just going to drink. I won't get a DUI. I won't crash my car and kill somebody. I won't do these things. We always think we're just going to drink and it'll be okay. I'll stay home. I'll stock up. I'll stay home. Or maybe you're going to marry a stranger and be wanted by the FBI in all 50 states within a year. Maybe. Um, because that's what happened to me. Don't ask me how. I don't know. But I'm telling you, if it happened to me, it could happen to you. It just happens just like that. You're just walking around. And I thought I was innocent, but there's no such thing as innocent uh, when the FBI is looking for you. Um, I had my daughter under an assumed name um, because I couldn't use my real name. I got pregnant during this time and had a kid, and I'm living in motels and traveling from city to city and with this guy who turns out to be incredibly abusive and horrible, and I can't call my mother because she's the one on. I got arrested in the meantime because she turned me in, and then I jumped bail, and somebody lost their house. I'm a piece of work. And... Um, yeah, so I am just trapped with this prisoner guy who's kind of mean, and I have a baby, and I'm drunk all the time. And the baby gave me the strength to leave, you know. I didn't want foster care to take the baby. I knew what foster care does to little kids. And I didn't want my baby to go to foster care, so I turned myself in to the police. And they were happy to have me. <laughs> This woman, Dottie, who I hated so much, my mother, she got custody of the baby. She liked to rub that in my face when she came to visit me in the prison um, where I lived um, for a while. And um, I just had to do that, and I got out, and I got to uh, move in with her, and by now she's sober. She's joined AA. She's joined AA, and everyone loves her, and she's so wonderful, and she gets rich. You know, she gets rich. She starts selling real estate. She's a rich woman with a Cadillac and all this stuff. And um, I get out of prison, and she gives me a job. She gives me real estate school. She gives me a car. She gives me a condo to live in with her um, and a room for the baby. And what do I do? No, thank you. Because there's one rule there. Can't drink. Not doing it. Can't make me. I'm leaving. And I start nine more years of drinking and emotionally abusing a little girl and uh, destroying my soul and just ruining everything I touch, ruining everything I touch. I did not know what alcohol was doing to me. I had no idea. It seemed like to me, it seemed like to me that uh, everybody was out to get me. It seemed like to me, if only I had met my dad, if only my mother hadn't been an alcoholic, if only I had had money, if only my husband hadn't been a bad man, then I wouldn't have these problems. It seemed like to me. If only I had been raised right, I wouldn't have these problems. In other words, I was the victim of all victims of the world. I was willing to take no responsibility for my life, and therefore, I could drink. It got so bad that I didn't even know it had me. And I, I, one day I thought of what alcoholism will do to you. I thought of what it did to me. And here's what it did to me. I have this kid 
she was the cutest kid, Melissa. The little bangs and the big blue eye, I mean cute. And she's my prisoner, basically. And um, I have to go to work at night, and I'm driving her to the babysitter, and she's like, Mommy, you know, can I come home tonight? Because Mommy never picked her up from the babysitter till the next day, you know, because Mommy's too drunk. And I would promise her, I'm going to pick you up tonight. We're going to go home. We're going to make cookies. You're going to sleep in your own bed. We'll go to the park tomorrow. And I'm, here's the thing. I meant it. I never loved anybody in my life till I met this little baby. Never. I loved her. She was my soul, you know, my heart. And I would promise her, and I meant it. When I said it, I meant it. And I'd go to work, and I'd be a waitress, and then when you get off work as a waitress, you get this thing called an after-shift drink. It's a free drink. You get it. Who's going to turn that down? Now, I don't know about alcoholism. I don't know the first drink is the killer. I don't know that. So I have my after-shift drink. And then I realize, wow, it's a little early. I still have time. I don't have to go pick her up yet. I can have another drink. And then I have the next drink. And then I see my friend, Dory. Oh, my God, I haven't seen her in so long. I should have a drink with her. I, I'll have a quick one. And then I realize it's too late to go pick her up. The babysitter won't open the door. Or it's too hot, or it's too cold, or I don't want to wake her up. And you guys, I don't do that once or twice. I do that for years to a little girl a little baby girl who only has me. Dad's in prison. Grandma don't want nothing to do with us. She's my heart, you know, and I, and I, I broke her. And I can't see that alcohol is the problem. He's the problem. She's the problem. Money is the problem. Oh, if I had enough money, I'd get sober. You know, if I could pay my bills, I'd get sober. I mean, or I wouldn't need to get sober because I wouldn't have any problems because I thought, you know, money would solve everything. I was a nightmare. And don't ask me how come I got sober. I don't know because by now I've been to AA a thousand times. And I don't like AA. And furthermore, I believe something about God. I know for a fact I have evidence and proof he does not like me. And everybody knows AA is all about God. That's all they talk about there all the time. You know, that's all. And um, I can't do that. I'm too busy to pray. And, like, I'm never meditating as long as I live. And God doesn't like me. So, therefore, I can't do this. And I don't, I, I just don't buy into it until this one day. I hope you had this one day. I hope you had this one day. July 23rd, 1989 was a shitty day, but all my days were shitty days. I mean, they were, everything was, it was a bad day. I remember I had no electricity, and I lived in Palm Desert, California. It was like 120 degrees. We had no air conditioning. And I mean, it was just miserable, and I had no job. I'd been fired again, and I had no money, and the rent was due on August 1st, and I had no job. And um, that night, I, I got on my knees, and I asked God to help me. I, that's why I said, help me. And I passed out. And the next day, this woman calls me up. This woman I met one time in an Al-Anon meeting when she caught me snorting cocaine on the back of the toilet in the ladies' bathroom. Um, but it was Al-Anon, and you're allowed to do that. You know, not AA or NA or nothing. I mean, they could do whatever they want in Al-Anon, right? And so... Um, 
Anyway, she didn't have a lot to say that day. She took off, and I felt like I should just go home, you know? <laughs> so I didn't go back to the meeting. And um, she just calls me and says, I think you need to go to N.A. Okay, you know, I mean, I didn't really have any defense against anything, not even people anymore, and I had nothing. I, I had cirrhosis of the liver. I was pathetic. I couldn't eat. I, I mean, I just... I, all my hair had fried off. It was blonde and about this tall because me and Betty Foster permed it and dyed it the same day while drinking peach daiquiris out of the jacuzzi. You know, I mean, I was just a train wreck. I mean, I weighed like 220 pounds, you know, like squishy. And she goes, you want to go to N.A.? I'm like, okay, I don't care. And, um, and I went, and nothing wrong with N.A., no offense if you're in N.A., but I just quickly realized that really wasn't the place for me, you know? I mean, I don't know why I realized that, but I don't think I would have liked Ritz-Carlton that night, to tell you the truth. And um, I also thought I was crazy, and I thought that A.A. and N.A. and all of them had giant computer systems all hooked together, and my mom and my stepdad, who was the king of A.A. in Palm Desert, she found another husband, you know, number eight, and he had 40 million years sober and, like, whatever. He was famous, and, um, like, it was sickening, and um, I thought they were going to find out. So I went over there, and I confessed. And I'll never forget, he just turns around and he picks up the phone and goes, she's ready. And um, I'll never forget that, you know. And you know, you know what they did? You know what they did for me? Um, well, my mom did send me anonymous pamphlets through the mail from time to time, but I recognize her writing. Um, you know, um, and she gave me a big book every Christmas. But I have a second edition, you know, so um, she started young. Um, she <laughs> they never said anything to me about getting sober. They never said, do you think you have a problem? They never said, do you want to go to a meeting? They never said a word. They let me hit bottom. They let me be done. They knew the secret that you're not gonna stay sober unless you find out you're done. They call that the first step. Concede to your innermost self that you're an alcoholic. This is the first step in recovery. Not I tell the world, oh, I took the first step, no. Here, where you live, I got this, and I'm never gonna get rid of it. Now what am I gonna do? And uh, I realized that and they put me in this treatment center, this horrible place called the ABC Club in Indio, California. And that's before Indio was cool. And um, I lasted three days. Um, <laughs> I just, third day, they expected you to help someone get out of the bed and help someone. That was the protocol there. <laughs> like, no, no, I'm going to go. So instead, I walk home all the way to Palm Desert, which is very far. And on July 24th, it's very hot. And, um, but I was crazy. And um, anyway... I spent 30 days and 30 nights at the Bill and Dottie Bazell Treatment Center. First and only patient, and it was hell on earth, and it was the best thing ever happened to me. They conveniently lived across the street from the uh, Fellowship Hall because my stepdad had put up the money to buy the place, and he could look with his binoculars all the time what's going on over there. And um, he was a retired Marine colonel, so he had this control thing going on. And... Um, we call him the great Santini. I mean, the guy was nuts. And um, 
but my mom was crazier. I mean, they were both crazy, and everyone in AA loved them. So here's what I had to do for 30 days. So if you're new and you think you have it tough, listen to this. I had to get up at 4 in the morning because that's when the colonel got up and made coffee, and he couldn't hear anymore, so he'd slam cabinets and talk to his dog, hey, boy, and, um, and, I, and I had to sleep on the couch because my daughter got the guest room because she didn't do anything wrong, and, um, <laughs> and so now that I'm up, I could go across the street to Fellowship Hall and mop the floors and clean the bathrooms and make the coffee for the 7 a.m., and while you're there, just go to 7 a.m., so I did. And I was sitting with people like Dr. Paul, huh, who has a story in the big book, but I don't know. He's some old man. Ew, this is creepy. I hate it here. Um, then I had to go back across the street, get the kid, take her to school, take her to daycare, take her somewhere. Then I had to go to the 10 a.m. women's meeting with Betty Ford. <laughs> You know, again, she was an issue for me. Uh, she had security and all that, and I thought they were going to tell on me, or the police. And, you know, um, then I had to go back and, you know, do chores around their house. And then I had to go back to the 12, 12 p.m. We all know about that, the brown baggers, you know. I mean, it's a mixed bunch of people. Then I got to go home all the way till 5.30, the drive-by people. Uh, do that after I cook dinner for Dottie and the Colonel and my kid, and then go that. And then back then, meetings started at 8:30 at night. Night meetings, 8:30. So I went to that. Got over at 10 because they were an hour and a half because they had to have a break because they were so long. I, I don't know when they come down to an hour. Um, they picked out a sponsor for me named Darlene Love. They told me that sponsor over there, go talk to her, and I did. And um, she was the greatest thing that ever happened to me in my whole entire life. That woman loved me to death. She loved me to death. And you know what else she did? She never told me what to do. I always, uh, people will come and ask me to sponsor them, and they'll say, are you one of those tough sponsors that's going to give me direction? I'm like, no. <laughs> no, I am not. <laughs> Why would you want that? What are you, a baby? You know, like, what? <laughs> What do you, no, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do what was done for me. I'm going to tell you what I did. Now, if you want to do that, that's fine. But that's how I stayed sober. I don't know how you should stay sober. I'll tell you how I stayed sober. You want to do that? Jump right in. Uh, because that's what Darlene did for me. That woman never told me what to do, but she would tell me very long, boring stories about what happened when I was nine months sober. And she, you know, and I, I think she's so self-centered, you know. I never got it till much later that she was just sharing her experience, strength, and hope. She gave me another great gift. Bill and Dottie didn't tell me to get sober. Darlene didn't tell me what to do. They let me find my way. And uh, Darlene did believe in service. She believed in service very much, and she believed I ought to be in it. And um, I was. I was a greeter. Uh, I was the Sarah Knight greeter at Fellowship Paul. Hi, I'm Kathy Well in Fellowship Paul. Here's the problem. I hate people. I hate people. I hate touching people. I hate talking to people. So greeting isn't really the best job for me. Um, but I had to do it for nine months. And then at nine months sober... Her and her little buddy friend, Mike, who's the secretary of the meeting, they take me aside one night. They go, Kathy, we have to talk to you. And I go, what? And they go, okay, usually you need a year sober. But, you know, you're doing so well, we're going to make an exception in your case. And we're going to have you be the, the, uh, the greeter chair person. 
Now, I'm so stupid, I believe that. I'm like, ooh, what honor. <laughs> wow. They just bamboozled me. The first of many times that would happen in AA. And um, now I'm not just a greeter. I'm in charge of getting other greeters, which is a problem because I hate people and I don't want to talk to anybody. Um, so <laughs> I'd make my nine-year-old go out to the vans arriving from treatment centers and ask people to greet um, because I, I, I absolutely could not talk to anyone. I never shared in a meeting until I was nine months sober. Never raised my hand. Never had a desire to share. Why I'm standing here, I'll have no idea. Um, no idea. Because I am the most reluctant person in the world to talk in front of people. Um, and that was only because this guy called on Steve's sister, not Kathy. Because there was always another Kathy. I could escape it. But there was only one Steve's sister. And Steve was my brother. And he was another perfect person in AA. They were all perfect my family. They were perfect. And I suffered because of that, because I was almost like AA royalty in a way. I didn't have to be new. I didn't have to try. I got invited to parties. I got this, I got that, you know, people had me sit with them because I'm Dottie's daughter, because I'm Steve's sister, you know, and um, it, it kept me sober, but didn't serve me well. When I was Nine years sober, um, by the time I'm nine years sober, I want to be sober. I have done so much in AA. I have made so many friends. I've become connected to people. I'm, I'm just, uh, I got my own business. I got my own business. When I got sober, I couldn't pay my $700 a month rent. And I remember telling them, I need $700 to pay my rent. And they're like, great, you want to be the greeter? You know? <laughs> What? You know, I need $700. Great. You want to make some coffee? You know, these people are crazy. Well, somehow my rent got paid because I lived there two more years in that apartment. I don't know how. I just made coffee and greeted, and my rent got paid. I don't know how. Um, but by the end of nine years, I, um, I had my own business. My daughter graduated third in her class from her high school and had a full-ride scholarship to UC Davis. Um, yeah, I mean, things were going great, great. I knew everybody in AA, you know, I was finding my way. It was wonderful. And then I met a guy. And, um, <laughs> and he was a good guy, you know, he was all right as far as guys go, but he probably wasn't the guy for me. And, um, but that didn't stop me. And um, my daughter went to college, and I moved to Las Vegas, where this fellow lived. Um, now, here's the problem. I hate Las Vegas. <laughs> I think it's a horrible place, you know, <laughs> like, you know, but, um, you know, got to do what you got to do. And um, I did get a good job. I got a really good job, and um, things didn't go well with me and the guy. Um, it was, oh, God. And this is where uh, I had to grow up. You know, I got sober in Palm Desert, and I grew up in Las Vegas because I had no defense against the first drink. I did not have my cushy home group where everybody knew me or I knew everyone. I didn't have this group of people that knew my mom and my stepdad and my handsome brothers. I didn't have anybody. I had his friends who no longer liked me because he dumped me. And I called him the Antichrist in a meeting, let's be honest. Um, so, you know, I mean, I did. I was kind of pissed. But um, so I was truly alone. I was alone in the world. And I was alone in AA. The only family I ever knew turned their back on me, really. Turned their back on me. 
my soul just I remember just laying in bed just wailing and scared and crying and um somebody gave me this book called Sermon on the Mount and um I started reading it and I found a relationship with a power greater than myself. It was a long walk. It was a struggle. Um, I took the big book seriously when it said, search fearlessly. You guys, I went to India. Like, really. Like, I'm looking. I'm looking all over for God. And it turns out he's like, here, you know, um, right here, probably in this podium, you know. I mean, he's, he's everywhere. Um, but I didn't know that back then. I just searched and searched. But while I was busy searching, I got over my broken heart, and I was able to go on and you know, sponsor women and help women and continue to grow and AA and have this this life, this journey of life, you know, and I, and I attribute it mostly to the 12 steps, um, to the 12 steps of AA. And I don't know if you have done them or not done them or kind of thinking about doing them. And I encourage you to read the big book where it tells you exactly what to do. It tells you do them right now. And it tells you don't do your third step and wait six years until you feel like writing your fourth step. And then it tells you, write your fourth step, and at once, go talk to somebody. At once, what does that mean? You know, that means, like, right now, don't screw around. This is a deadly disease, you know. And then it gives you instructions what to do, and hopefully you have a sponsor by then. And you're going to have these lessons for life. And one of the lessons I got, the biggest lesson I got, really, was the ninth step. So I do my fourth step, not because I'm this spiritual person or I want to be a AA person. No, because I want to go to the Laughlin Roundup uh, with, with uh, Colleen and Trendy Trinda when I'm nine months sober. And um, Darlene won't let me go because it's in Nevada and they give away free alcohol in Nevada. And nobody she sponsors is going where there's free alcohol until she's safe and protected from, you know, alcohol. And that's because she's done her fifth step. So I've been lying about doing my fourth step for many, many months. You know, she asked me, working on that? I'm like, oh, yeah. You know, I haven't bought paper yet. You know, I mean, because I'm a liar. And um, back then, I'm pretty honest now. And um, so I hurried up and did one so I could go to Laughlin. And um, why I'm doing it, I do get a few key points out. Um, I hate my mother. Hate her. It's not, it's not a, just a resentment. It's like this visceral hate, you know. And then I hate my ex-husband hate them. And then, you know, you make this list of people you're going to forgive now and people you're going to forgive later, you know, in a little bit. Basically, the people that like you, the money you owe, and the people whose guts you hate, and you're probably never going to forgive. You know, they get three things. That's what I got. And Dottie and my ex-husband were at the bottom of the three things. I'm never going to forgive these people as long as I live. Ever, never. Forget about it. And I walked around hateful. And um, finally... My sponsor says to me, Kathy, you have to make it right with your mom. And I had this belief that she had to make amends to me. She had to be a good mother. See, she was the queen of AA, but she didn't become a good mother. She wasn't really interested in parenting. She was interested in being the queen of AA, and there's nothing wrong with that. But in my mind, she should have done what it said in the steps. And I had a resentment about that. I had a resentment about it. I had a resentment against everybody that ever liked her. You know, I mean, if you clap for her, I hated you. You know, and um, I just didn't like her. And um, my sponsor kept saying, it's not about her. Don't you understand? And no, I did not. 
And then one day she said, if you're, and she wouldn't let up this woman, she goes, when you stand at her grave, do you want to be clean or dirty? You want to live the rest of your life full of hate? No. She goes, good, because you won't stay sober. So you need to go make amends to her. I'm like, what are you talking about? Make amends to her? For what? You know, the woman, I live in foster care. She put me in jail. She's over prison. She goes, um, since you turned 18, have you been a good daughter? Well, you know, and she's like, her phone's tapped, and didn't you take her grandchild, and didn't she have to go visit you in prison, and didn't she give you money, and didn't she do this, and didn't she do that? Is that being a good daughter? Did you respect her and love her? Did you go to AA and trash talk her? What kind of daughter were you? You go make amends for that. Not your childhood. That was not your fault. But you go make amends for what you did since you've been 18 years old. And then you ask her how you can make it right, and you shut your mouth. So I do. And you know what she says? I'd like to go to the mall. I'd like to spend time with you. I'd like some of your time. <laughs> you know, what are you talking about? You know, don't you want money or, you know, food or something? No, she wants me to pick her up every single Monday and go to the mall and walk her around and go to old lady stores and look at Estee Lauder and all this stuff. And, you know, I'm so bored and I hate her and, uh, you know, la, la, la. And we do this for two years. And um, two years. And she um, starts telling me about her childhood a little bit. And she starts telling me about herself. She was 15 when she had me. And my dad bounced, you know. I mean, come on. And then she had my brother and she was 16. But the same guy who came back and then bounced again. You know, I mean, she didn't have a real, and she had no education. And, she, you know, the woman just, she's an alcoholic. And her parents were immigrants from Mexico. They barely spoke English. You know, she just didn't have the best coming up herself. And um, I start to see her in a different light. And um, somewhere along the line, I start to like her. And somewhere along the line, I start to more than like her. And the day I moved to Las Vegas, she came over to my house. And I remember as I was driving away in my car, she was standing in the street and she was crying. And I cried because I was going to miss her, you know, because I loved her. Truth is, I always loved her. And AA gave me a relationship with her. And then I moved to Las Vegas, and six months later, she gets diagnosed with uh, cancer and emphysema and all this horrible stuff, and she's got a death sentence. She's going to die. And for two years, I went back to Palm Desert every weekend to take her to the mall for two years. We went to the mall. First, she could walk, and then she was in a wheelchair, and then she was in a wheelchair with oxygen, and she insisted on going to the mall. And she was my mom. And I was proud to take her, you know? The last place she ever went in her life was to the mall with me and my brother Steve and my sister Laura. Unfortunately, my brother Bob had relapsed and he was in prison. But, you know, um, <laughs> we understood. She bought our lunch. She had never pulled out a credit card in her life and bought us anything. And she bought our lunch. And we went home, and we all got in her bed and watched Gone with the Wind, which is my favorite movie, by the way. And, um, and she died. Thank you, AA. 
thank you for something I didn't want. I didn't know I wanted. I didn't know I needed. I didn't know I couldn't be a good mother until I did that. I didn't know I could be a good friend until I did that. I didn't know that I could no longer be hostage to the world until I did that. See, Dottie didn't change. She didn't change at all. She was still the same woman that brought us up. But the steps changed me. And I realized something I never knew, that you can be whoever you want, but I don't have to change who I am in the face of that. I'm nice. I'm good. Treat me bad. I don't care. I'm still going to be nice because I am. And I used to always change, just like a chameleon, you know? And uh, I think that's the greatest thing I ever learned. That is a, a, the best lesson. And then quickly, my ex-husband, Michael, mm, this guy's my best friend. I have known him for 45 years. 45 years. I call him three times a week. His wife just had a massive heart attack, and he freaked out, called me, crying. I don't know what to do. I went and stayed at their house for three weeks and took care of her. This is because AA. This is because he got sober in prison. This is because I'm sober, because we both did the steps, because we wanted to be good parents for this little girl who became a drug addict. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> Anne is sober now, 11 years, um, and, I, and yeah, and it, it wasn't without a little, um, a little, wow, like she became a Mexican gangbanger, but she's blonde, blue-eyed girl, and um, she went to jail, and she stole cars and money, and oh my God, it was the worst two years of my life. She break into my house when I'm at work, and um, yeah, it was awful. Um, but she knew the day when I took her out of the mental ward and dropped her off at a rehab with a $20 bill and a suitcase going, don't come back to my house, uh, but you can live in there. Um, when she went in there, she knew one thing. She knew one thing. She knew that AA worked. She knew it without a shadow of a doubt. She knew it because her mom was sober, because her grandma had been sober, because her Uncle Steve was sober, because her Uncle Bob was sober again, because her Aunt Joni was sober, because her dad was sober. For many years, some of us. That girl believed it. I don't think AA can keep our children from becoming alcoholics and addicts. I think it's genetic. But I think us being sober can teach our children a different way to live can teach our children where the truth lies. That's, what else are we gonna do for them? You know? Uh, she's doing fantastic. She wanted to be a flight attendant. She, uh, she wanted to be a flight attendant, and she became a flight attendant. She wanted to lose 100 pounds. She lost 100 pounds. She wanted to have this wonderful life. She was on the cover of People magazine. Don't ask me how. She did it. She was on Good Morning America. She, the girl is a force of nature. She's something else. I have never, ever met anybody like Melissa Minas. She is, she's a wacky paw person. And um, she, oh my God, she's all involved with these people. And they're nuttier and a bunch of fruitcakes, but they have a good time. And um, that's an AA for young people, by the way. And um, 
she just goes all over the country with them doing stuff, and um, she loves it so much. And her dad and I had never been with her, the two of us, ever, at the same time. And one night, he was taking her out to dinner. He came to L.A., and now we live in L.A. And he uh, came to L.A., and um, he was going to take her out to dinner, and he said, hey, ask your mom to go. And I said, sure. And she came to my door to pick me up, and she looked beautiful. She looked so beautiful. She was just, her hair, and her, she was beaming. And I said, honey, you, you look so good. You look so lovely, you know. And she goes, mom, it's a special day. And I'm like, this? <laughs> what, what day is it, honey? And she goes, mom, I'm going to have dinner with my mom and my dad at the same table for the first time in my life. This is a special day. That's what AA can do for a family. That girl got to sit at a table with her mother and father and eat dinner. Every kid's birthright. But we couldn't give it to her, but AA did. I can't thank you enough for my life and my family's life and everything you've done for me and all the wonderful experiences I've had in AA. And please, please, please get a sponsor. Please just follow the direction. No matter what your head tells you, your life can change, and, um, and you might be able to help somebody someday. Greatest gift of all. Thank you for letting me share. Thank you, Kathy.